This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse and our first program of 2014. This week, a rare interview from the South Atlantic. Some call the islands the Malvinas, but those who live there call them the Falklands. We'll hear from one of their legislators. And with a new government in power in Paraguay, it's time to assess progress there. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. Raul Castro led Cubans in the 55th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution this week in Santiago, Cuba. Castro was one of the guerrilla leaders who brought his brother Fidel to power in 1959. In his speech, Raul Castro warned of new subversive counter-revolutionary trends on the island, but he said the revolution would endure. The revolution arrived and brought triumphs without compromise for anyone, absolutely anyone. The people as a whole were the only ones who were victorious. Despite Castro's warnings about counter-revolution, his government has made major economic reforms, including recently allowing easier imports for cars and supporting loans for independent small businesses. Raul Castro took over for his brother officially six years ago. Fidel stepped down due to health problems. El Salvador's Chaparastique volcano erupted as five-mile plumes of dark ash shot into the sky, darkening the surrounding area. Thousands of residents evacuated their homes, airlines canceled flights, and traffic was jammed because of the mass exodus. Salvadoran officials warned of the risk of the volcano erupting again, this time spewing lava. The last eruption with lava was in 1976. This is Chaparastique's first eruption in 37 years. Many environmentalists credit Brazilian labor leader Francisco Alves Mendes Fijo, known as Chico Mendes, with shaping the modern international environmental movement. In 1980s Brazil, Mendes was controversial. His opponents saw him as an obstacle to development. A rancher who opposed Mendes assassinated the environmental leader in his home in the Amazon 25 years ago. During the holidays, a group in Washington, D.C. commemorated Mendez's legacy on the anniversary of his death. Our Rachel Bay attended the special memorial. Local musicians played Brazilian songs while those who knew Mendez shared thoughts on his life and work. Mendez began extracting latex from rubber trees in the Amazon at age 9 and didn't learn to read until age 18. He became a labor organizer, founded the National Council of Rubber Tappers, and eventually became a leader in the international environmental movement. The Environmental Defense Fund Steve Schwartzman met Mendez in October 1985 at the first national meeting of rubber tappers in Brazil. Schwartzman said Mendez was at the front of a shift in environmental thinking. There was a generalized sense that uh, really the problem was that there were these poor people out there in the forest who needed to cut down the forest to be able to eat. But it was kind of this unavoidable conflict. Chico Mendes and the rubber tappers movement was this whole other constituency that nobody or hardly anyone knew anything about. Mendez 
Mendez is best known for developing something called an extractive reserve. The government protects tracts of land in the rainforest exclusively for residents who sustainably mine the forest for its natural resources. Anthropologist and human rights advocate Linda Rabin, who organized the memorial service, said Mendez was also a pioneer in his ability to unite indigenous and non-indigenous rural workers. They were both being threatened by outsiders coming into their communities and their territories and trying to steal their resources and drive them out. The Wilson Center's Paulo Sotero said Mendez's death was a turning point for Brazil's relatively young democracy. It galvanized domestic and international support for a sustainability agenda that would put Brazil eventually at the center of a global debate about the, the planet's future. In April, Rabin plans to host a conference that will further examine Mendez's influence on modern environmentalism. For Latin Pulse, I'm Rachel Bay. A nine-year-old boy has conquered Aconcagua Peak in Argentina. Tyler Armstrong and his father, both from the United States, climbed the mountain with the help of a Tibetan Sherpa, the boy trained twice a day for six weeks to prepare for the dangerous climb. More than 100 people have died attempting to make it to the top. Aconcagua is the highest peak in South America. This isn't the first peak Armstrong has climbed. Last year, he made it to the top of Kilimanjaro, Africa's highest mountain. The young Armstrong also raised money for muscular dystrophy. Armstrong is now the youngest person to make it to the top of Aconcagua, and the previous record holder was a 10-year-old boy from the United States who made the climb in 2008. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Hamill. Thanks, Megan. And now it's time for a trip across many miles and many decades. Down to the South Atlantic and the British Overseas Territory, the Falkland Islands. Argentina has claimed the islands as its territory since at least 1816, and Argentines call the islands the Malvinas as they are about 300 miles from the Argentine coast. The British and Argentines tussled over the islands in the early 19th century, with the British maintaining a mostly steady presence since 1833, and with British territorial claims that stretch back at least 250 years. Argentina and Britain fought a war over the islands in 1982. Some considered this dispute a relic of imperial times, but for the 3,000 people living on the islands, the dispute is ever-present. Argentina's government has pressed its claims harder in the past few years, and the islanders voted last year to remain part of the United Kingdom, the UK. We spoke recently via Skype with Mike Summers, a member of the Falklands Legislative Assembly, about the current political context. We've really seen the Argentine government, the government of President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, amplify its claims to the Falkland Islands. And, and so I'm wondering what your views of this particular policy are and how that is reflected in the day-to-day governance there on the islands. Uh, we're well used to the Argentines being difficult over the Falklands. It's been going on for, <clears throat> for quite a number of years. Um, I think uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner has, has taken things to a, to a slightly new level in, in that she's, uh, she's tried to increase the, the economic blockade on the Falklands by uh, changing the laws in Argentina about uh, either Argentine companies or companies resident in Argentina taking part in fishing activities or uh, explorations for hydrocarbons. The most recent amendments to the to the law uh, criminalise uh, activity uh, supporting Falklands hydrocarbons development and 
and introducing swinging penalties for anybody who is uh, arrested in Argentina for, for assisting that sort of thing. So uh, really, Christina Kirchner has, uh, has, has tried to sort of up the ante a, a bit. Um, does it make much difference? Um, not really. Um, the oil companies who are operating here and indeed the fishing companies who operate here have already discounted all this activity in their planning. They know how to work in the Falklands without having to use mainland Argentina or Argentine suppliers. Um, they, they know that, that they, they have a high cost base because of this activity, but, it, but it, it's all sustainable um, because they, they worked on the assumption that, that no activity with or through Argentina would be, would be possible. So does it affect people on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, I think I've described it uh, previously uh, as being a bit like having to, to, to go into uh, the centre of New York or the centre of London on the metro every day. You know, you, you wouldn't want it to be like that. It's a, not a very nice way to start the day, but it's just a fact of life. So tell us a little bit about the fact of life, of living with the with this economic boycott, do you feel it on a daily basis? We do to an extent. Um, the, the boycott works in a, in a number of ways. Uh, I think the, uh, the the attempts to prevent fishing activities and, uh, and hydrocarbons activities don't really have very much effect. But closing uh, or attempting to close uh, Latin American ports to, uh, to Falklands flagged vessels does have some effect. It, it makes import and export very much more, more difficult. We've got to go further afield. Getting fresh fruit and vegetables to the Falklands is, is troublesome. Um, frankly, you don't get much fresh fruit here, so that's not a good thing. Um, it, it affects the tourism industry to an extent because the, the Argentine government won't allow overflights uh, over Argentina for passenger exchanges from Chile or from Uruguay or elsewhere. Um, it doesn't mean that it isn't still a perfectly viable industry and, and it doesn't still make a decent contribution to GDP, but it does mean that the, the speed of its growth is restricted. One of the points that people on the Falklands tend to make is that you are self-sufficient except for defense. Your oil and fishing resources are, are sufficient for that. I'm, I'm wondering, though, if your oil and fishing resources, which have increased in the past decade, in the past generation, if that's what the Argentines are, are really interested in. Well, I suppose things change over time, don't they? Um, you know, the Argentines first laid this claim to the Falklands um, back in the, uh, in the early 1800s. Uh, there was no fishing and, and no oil in those days. Um, it was based on some kind of, in our view, spurious interpretation of, of, of their position in, in relation to, uh, to what the Spaniards were doing in this part of the world. <clears throat> but of course, the reality is that, um, that the, the Brits have been in the Falklands since way, way before 1833, when, when they say their claim originates. So we'd already been here um, for, for about 50 years. <clears throat> I, I think it's certainly more about oil these days. Um, Argentina's not in a great state it, itself. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a good economic position. I, I, I guess anything else that the Argentines can, can add to their, uh, to their stock would, uh, would, would marginally improve their position. But I don't, at the end of the day, is it really about fish and oil? I think not. It's largely about Argentina constantly over the last several decades needing a cause that, that will try and unite them. And the Falklands cause is, is being used. It was used by Galtieri. It was used by Perón. It's been used by, by the Kirchners in the same way to try and give Argentine some kind of common cause to join together. Uh, to cover up deficiencies in the uh, in the home administration and, and the home economy, 
So it's not it's not really about I don't think the the natural resources for us. Uh, it's about something quite different. They're after a land grab. They what they want to do is to colonize the Falklands. What we say is the issue. This issue is about fundamental human rights, and it's not really a, a dispute between Argentina and the United Kingdom. It's really about the rights of Falkland Island people. We've been here for. The best part of, of 200 years, we've come from all over the world to, to, to be pioneers in this, in this country. We've made this country what it is. We are a people in our own right. And we have, we have the right uh, for our views, for our, <clears throat> the way we want to live our lives, to be, uh, to be respected under the UN Constitution and in accordance with the, with the way that everybody has the right to, to self-determination. So <clears throat> we see it very differently from, from the way that the Argentines try and portray it to the rest of the world as some kind of colonial situation. The Falklands haven't been a colony of the United Kingdom for quite a long time now. As you say, we, we pay our own way, we pay no taxes to the UK, we receive no income from the UK other than the cost of defence, which the UK has a, has a commitment to, uh, to provide. So we, we see it, we see it in, uh, in, in very different perspectives and it's it's becoming easier, I think, for us um, as a result of, of somewhat sort of irrational Argentine um, <clears throat> politics to persuade other people that actually that's the way that it should be seen. The referendum that we held earlier this year was very much about the right of the people to determine their own future, very much about the right of the people of the Falkland Islands to decide what goes on in, in this country of ours. <clears throat> and, and I think even countries in Latin America are beginning to accept that actually this is about people. This is not about land. This is about people. And the rights of Falklands people should be respected. Although we actually saw today, the, or yesterday, the foreign minister of Bolivia citing the Falklands as, as one of the problems in, in Latin America, that the Falklands should go to the Argentines. You were in New York at the UN talking about this issue of self-determination in I believe July of, of 2013, and and so I'm wondering how your presentation was greeted at the UN, and whether you were able to to make some headway on on this particular point of view. We were we were meeting with the uh, the C24, the Decolonization Committee. Um, that's a very odd bunch of people, um, and. Uh, if you were if you were going to, to select a um, a group of countries to be uh, responsible on behalf of the United Nations for decolonization, uh, you probably wouldn't select that group. But but nevertheless, you have to work with uh, with with what you've got. Uh, we talked to a number of um, of countries who have, um, if you if you like, a real interest in um, in the rights of uh, of small non-independent states. Countries who have a uh, perhaps a, a, a history themselves of having been decolonized or having been associated with colonialism in, in some way previously. And when you talk to them, and you talk to them about the rights of people and the right to self-determination, they will readily agree. Um, the difficulty that, that we have, uh, not only with, uh, with, with the UN, but with other people, is, is getting an understanding that when the Argentines say, we want to talk, we want to discuss, we want to negotiate, what they actually mean is that they want to negotiate the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands. They don't want to d discuss with us the, the preservation of fish stocks in the southwest Atlantic. They don't want to discuss with us how to develop tourism for the, for the benefit of this whole region. They only want to discuss owning us and owning our country. And that for us is, is very difficult. Um, and indeed, it's 
there's no there's no reason why the people of the Falkland Islands should agree to be colonized by by Argentina. Uh, that wouldn't be in our, in, in our interest at all. And frankly, I don't think it would be in the interest of, of any other non-independent territory in the, in the whole of the rest of the world to allow a country like that to simply bully their way into owning a piece of territory that, that they have no, no right to. So you know, when we go to the, uh, the C24, are we successful? Uh, we're successful to the extent that we can put our message out there, we can talk to, to open-minded people uh, as, to, as to whether you know, we have the right to determine our own future and, and how that should proceed. But not everybody is open-minded in the uh, in the C24, and you certainly will find a number of Latin American countries who go there with set scripts about supporting the Argentine position because that's the sort of Latin American Brotherhood thing. It's what they've agreed beforehand. They don't listen to the discussions. They don't listen to the arguments. They simply repeat the same old mantra about supporting the Argentine position. We're not just from uh, originally from from the United Kingdom. Uh, we're not an implanted British population, as the as the Argentine government would, would have you believe. We are, in fact, from a large number of different countries, people who've come here to live and to work and to make their lives here in a, in a country that's quiet and peaceful and, and, and you know, just a fabulous place to live if we could, be, if we could just be left to live our lives in, in peace. Um, and, and so you know, I, I, the message that Falkland Islanders want to, to get out to the rest of the world is, you know, please encourage your government not to see this thing as a dispute between Argentina and, and, and the United Kingdom. See this thing as the right of a people, a, a genuine, well-established, peaceful people, simply wanting to get on and, and, and live their lives in, in, in peace in the way that suits them. Um, and, and try to set aside <clears throat> these sort of colonial ambitions from frankly, from either side, if, if, if that's the way you see it, and say, well, you know, if it, if it is or has been a colony of the UK, it shouldn't be, it should never be a colony of Argentina, these people in the Falklands should be allowed to exercise their, their fundamental human rights to just get on and live their lives in peace. Thank you so much. Mike <laughs> Summers, a member of the Legislative Assembly of the Falkland Islands, joining us via Skype from the Falklands today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, it's a pleasure, Rick, and uh, good to talk to you again. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. August of 2013 brought a new president into power in Paraguay. Businessman Horacio Cartes led a return of the Colorado Party, the conservative party that had ruled the country for 61 years until its defeat at the polls in 2008. Almost six months into the Cartes administration, we asked Professor Andrew Nixon at the University of Birmingham in the UK for his assessment. Nixon is the co-editor of the Paraguay Reader. Here are excerpts from our interview conducted via Skype. Generally speaking, his performance to date has been, I have to say, satisfactory. There's still a lot of, of uh, mystery, I would say, about his, the future direction of his, of his presidency. He's He's, he's, he's been obsessed with two things, really. One is to attract foreign direct investment to, to the country. He's been making a lot of noises uh, in that respect. 
The second thing is um, he singled out the need to um, stamp out uh, an insurgency in the north, a small insurgency movement in the north of the country. And thirdly, um, he seems to be resolving in a rather unusual way a major headache that he inherited from his predecessors, uh, and that's the relationship of the country with Mercosur, the regional economic development group of the Southern Cone. Well, let's talk about that right away. There's been some controversy um, that Paraguay was suspended from Mercosur because of the unusual, what some people have called a congressional coup that preceded Cartes. And so um, what is happening with Mercosur? Well, um, indeed, that's the, that's the case. Paraguay was suspended, um, and the partners said that as soon as a democratically elected government uh, came into power, uh, he could come back into Mercosur, and that's what happened. Cardiz was elected in a free and fair election. But to everyone's surprise, or perhaps not to surprising people in, in Paraguay, the Paraguayan government itself said, well, we're not prepared to go back. For another reason, because while we were suspended, Venezuela entered Mercosur by the back door. And the statutes of Mercosur says that all members should sign the agreement when a new member enters. And of course, Paraguay being suspended meant that they couldn't sign this. Um, and at the time, they didn't particularly want to anyhow. And so that's been a major stumbling block. And when uh, Cardis uh, took office, he was adamant that he was not going to give in uh, to this uh, pressure from outside and that any decision on re-entering Mercosur in, 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 in a full sense uh, had to be conditional on sorting out the problem, the problem of what they call the illegal uh, entry of Venezuela. But what's happened in the past two months is that Cartes has completely backtracked on this and is now accepting Venezuelan entry and, and has got congressional approval from the Senate for um, Venezuelan entry to, to Mercosur uh, and is in the process of getting this endorsed also by the lower house, the Chamber of Deputies, and uh, it looks like things have been ironed out. But what's surprised people and what people don't understand is why he's made this sudden change of mind. And, and so what are your theories? Well, there are a number of theories going around in Paraguay. One is that the um, uh, partner nations, uh, Argentina and um, uh, uh, Brazil, read read uh, Carter's the Riot Act and said, look, guy, if, you don't, if, you're, if you're not going to set Venezuelan entry, then, then uh, we are going to make things really difficult for you uh, inside Mercosur uh, with the re-establishment re, re of all sorts of non-tariff barriers that they do from time to time to hamper Paraguayan foreign trade, and also to put an end to this incipient regional development fund, FOCEM, uh, for, for which Paraguay is the major beneficiary. It's a sort of um, uh, capital investment program that, that benefits the smaller nations of Mercosur, Paraguay and Uruguay, and Paraguay has certainly benefited from that in the past few years. So these are some of the, of the theories that are being banded around, but quite honestly, nobody really knows at this stage why it is that um, as late as September, Cartes was saying, no, 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 we're not going to accept Venezuelan entry. And, and then uh, there was a 180 degrees uh, switch round uh, by, by late October, November, and he was beginning to lobby as successfully as it turned out, uh, the Senate to, to uh, drop its opposition to Venezuelan entry. One of the problems that President Cartes faces is this incipient uh, insurgency in the country. The EPP, the Paraguayan People's Army, 
um, represents that group. We're not really talking about a civil war there, but but a guerrilla group, yes? Yeah, we're talking about a kind of 1960s um, Marxist guerrilla group, which um, has virtually disappeared in most of the rest of Latin America. In fact, it's the only such movement that, that has appeared in the whole of the Americas since the end of the Cold War. Um, it is a small group uh, at, the, at the moment, and its, its activities, its active activities are confined basically to two departments of the country in the north, Concepcion and San Pedro, which are amongst the poorest uh, regions of the country, and that is, a, is certainly a, a major factor. But what, what's, what's odd about this uh, whole business is that um, under the Lugo government and under the uh, now under the Cartes government, a number of major military maneuvers have been carried out in the region. Um, the latest one being uh, from early September of this year, and have been basically very unsuccessful in in making inroads into into capturing, uh, uh, disarming any of of the uh, of, of the cells of of the EPP. They've been largely unsuccessful. Uh, which suggests that the EPP has a very, very sophisticated um, support network in the areas that it's operating in. This is not a mountainous area. This is not the Andes of Colombia or of, or of Peru. Uh, Paraguay is a low-lying country with hills. Uh, they call them mountains, but they're really hills. Um, but the, the, the EPP active units are extremely mobile and, um, and uh, at, at the moment seem to be very successful at... Um, uh, evading capture from from the r rather enormous um, military maneuvers that have been taking place on the 8th of, of December, just a, a couple of weeks ago, um, the EPP killed for the first time a member of the armed forces. Um, this marks a new shift in the in in the in the armed movement, because up until that date they had attacked uh, of the security forces um, members of the police force. So we're headed toward perhaps a more violent phase in this insurgency? It's hard to say. It's, it's hard to say at this stage, Rick, but certainly um, I think it would be accurate to say that since Cartes came to power and since he made this decision um, to um, stamp out the EPP, the EPP's level of activity has increased significantly over the period of Carter's presidency, which is something that I think that people were, were, were not expecting. What else haven't we talked about that you think is important? Well, we've talked about uh, a, a number of things here, um, and perhaps as, as is unfortunately often the case in Paraguay, we've talked about the kind of negative things. I could say on a positive front that, you know, Paraguay is, looks like it's doing very well economically, you know, after a, a major um, uh, problem with the climate uh, in, in, in 2011, the, the growth rate bounced back with a vengeance in 2012, 14%, one of the highest in the world, as soya production and soya prices boomed. Paraguay is now the sixth largest producer of soya in the world and the fourth largest exporter of soya in the world. Now, for many people, that is success. This is the sort of thing that we should be shouting about and, 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 and being really happy about. Of course, there's a downside to this because um, soya now occupies, if you take e the eastern part of Paraguay, where 95% where of the population live the, to the east of the river Paraguay, soya alone, just soya, forget any other, any other crop, occupies 23% of the total land area. So almost one hectare in four of the total land area is now under soya. So it's be it is 
very quickly turning into like the Great Plains of America with, with, with massive deforestation and of course expulsion of poor farmers whose communities are just being surrounded by large, enormous soy plantations, mechanized soy plantations, suffering from problems of, um, of pesticides being used far too close to communities, breaking environmental laws, and, and lack of employment opportunities because one tractor driver on these mechanized farms can alone uh, cultivate 150 hectares. Thank you so much. Andrew Nixon of the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom and the co-editor of the Paraguay Reader joining us on Latin Pulse today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick. And now a programming note. Latin Pulse will return to its regular schedule next week. You can hear us online every Thursday again, resuming on January the 9th. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, announcer Victor Kilo and associate producer Megan Eckhamel. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>